The following extended episode of Writer's Block Radio Hour, Headspace, contains adult themes and language that may not be suitable for a younger audience. Blocks written by Anya King and performed by Emma Bird. He's been in there seven minutes. Please, Harry, don't fuck it up. Be normal, just this once. It's usually around now they come hurrying out. Could you help us with Harry, Mrs. Forrester? Three and a half years we asked for help with Harry. We were fobbed off and patronised and made to feel like shit. Oh, babies develop at their own rate, Mrs. Forrester. Every child's different, Tina. First time mums are always over anxious, dear. He'll talk when he's ready. He's picking up on your stress. He's attention seeking. Use baby signing or Makaton. Did he have an MMR? Try baby massage and yoga, essential oils, a vegan diet and prayer. I knew he should have been talking and he wasn't and, and playing, he didn't. And hugging. We gave up even trying to hug Harry. My mum was no help. You worry too much over nothing, Tina, she said. Stop trying to make him into a boffin. Chuck some of them books out and let the poor little mite watch telly. My sister Liz smoked her own body weight in dope and fags the whole time she was pregnant. Drank like a fish. Went into labour a month early in the toilets at Shady's nightclub. Used a 60-inch TV as a babysitter. And her Nathan could unlock a phone, dial Papa Joe's and order a pizza before he was three. But meanwhile, Harry, do you know we are still... It's been 17 years. We are still waiting for Harry to put three wooden bricks on top of each other to make a tower. Every bloody doctor and specialist since he was, I don't know, nine months old, would put three bricks in front of him, red, yellow, blue. Can you make a tower, Harry? None of them ever told us why it's so bloody important. I mean, why is putting them one, two, three on top of each other genius, but putting them one, two, three in the doctor's desk drawers or one, two, three in her pockets or one, two, three out the window mean he's a bloody retard? Harry can build you a computer programme. All of that. It's like living with Bill Gates or Mr Spock, but he still hasn't put three bricks on top of each other. Oh, God. Nine minutes. I wish I knew what was happening in there. I know, I know he's 17 and if and if he can't do this interview on his own then he's not ready for college but he's come so far. When he was little if you'd have told me he'd been doing like a college course. Oh. He was five years old, wouldn't talk. Wouldn't put three bricks in a pile. Scream blue murder if anyone touched him. Our local primary school couldn't cope with him. They sent him to a special school more suited to Harry's needs. And what they meant was, it's not our problem anymore, not upsetting those nice normal kids. It was 35 miles away to special school, an hour there and back in a taxi every day. More if the traffic was shit. John was working away. Afternoons I'd be listening to the normal kids coming down the road, laughing, bashing each other with the book bags. 
We were pale, but I knew it was pointless. Coming up Christmas, we drove over there for a carol concert. I'd been, John hadn't. He didn't have a clue until then just how special these other kids were. You're not allowed to say handicapped anymore, but some of them... Sorry, I sound horrible. I don't mean to be. Those poor kids. All the wheelchairs and gizmos and tubes and wee bags and dribble bibs. The helpers grabbing hold of kids' hands and making them clap. Driving home, counting other people's Christmas lights and John kept blinking. He was thumbing tears out of his eyes. He said, Harry doesn't belong there, Tina. We've got to get him out. Funny thing, though. He had learned to read. The taxi driver, Pietro, he put all these beanos and dandies in the car for the kids. Next thing, Harry's into the comics, an hour there, an hour back, every day, just giggling, reading. He went from nothing to reading everything, just like that. Comics, shop signs, packets in Asda, books. He was halfway through the kids' section in the library when they closed it down. Talking to. Maybe it was the taxi radio, but we couldn't shut him up. When Harry does decide to learn something, he goes naught to 90 in under 60 seconds. Because of our appeal and his progress, the local school gave him a trial session. I went in to collect him after, and he stood up on the teacher's desk, pointing to the big map on the wall, telling everyone, this is Antarctica, and this is Australia, and we're this little one here. And he was right every time. His class took months to learn the time. Harry, 15 minutes. Oh, and not just the time, but time zones. So you asked him, what time is it, Harry? And he'd say, it's half two here in the UK, but it's such and such in New York and something else in Moscow and whatever it was in Hong Kong. Right, every time. In one year, we went from special needs to gifted and talented. Keeping up with him was exhausting. I know everything about dinosaurs, sharks, the space programme, the French Revolution, British stamps. God help me, that was the closest I've come to killing him. Oh, Mary Queen of Scots, the Hubble telescope, 13 minutes, and Star Trek. The interview letter said five, and penguins. God, the penguins went on for two years. He waddled everywhere. It was Pingu first, and then Happy Feet, and then David Attenborough. He told a learning facilitator, yeah, yeah, I know it's bollocks, that he'd fallen over and bumped his beak. We had months of reports and case reviews. Harry is not officially a penguin, though he does present certain penguin-like behaviours. <laughs> Someone actually got paid for that. It was the penguins, actually, that got him into Chris Packham and photography. John bought him one of those old put-in-a-film camera. They made a dark room in the cupboard under the stairs. The first time a picture appeared on the paper in a tray. He jumped up and down and hugged John. He came running out to show me and hugged me too. He took pictures and he... He developed. <laughs> he practically lives under them stairs now. Like Harry Potter, 15 minutes. There's over 100 students want to do this course and only 25 places. Oh, please don't let him hug the tutor. She'll know about his ASD, it's on his form, but just just show her your photos, Harry, and, and smile and... Oh, the door's opening. I can see the tutor smiling. Harry's standing up. God, when did he get so tall? She knows he won't shake hands. She's doing an elbow bump. Oh, Harry's reaching for something on a desk. It's a, a heap of little boxes or film, I suppose. He, he's picking one of them up. Bloody hell. Oh, he's not going to stack him in a tower, is he? Is he finally actually going to stack him in a tower today of all days?
Oh! <laughs> no. He's pushing them next to each other in a nice tidy line instead. And that's okay. That is totally okay. Redeemed. Written by Benjamin Peel and performed by Paul Donnelly. A few years ago when I was banged up, my head was up my ass. I was in a very different planet. I could have gone down a very different route in my life if I hadn't attended the drama workshop whilst I was inside. I nearly didn't go because of all the piss taking and shit when I showed my interest. See, to be honest, drama and stories and English was about the only thing I liked in school. Everything else is shit. I was really afraid to stand up and show my interest. My teacher could see I was interested. She tried to encourage me, but I was having none of it. After school, I bummed around with the same half-wits, ended up with fuck all to show for it either. I turned to commit and pretty king. He feed my habits. I couldn't think what else to do. I screwed an old man's house. He'd been in a war. He tried to fight back with me. We ended up in a tussle. You know what? I've never felt so ashamed when they put me down. I'll admit, I was shitting my pants in the jail. I soon got used to it, because I was a bit of a joker, I was left alone. When I started the drama workshop, I was very reluctant at first. But they were very patient, and said they could see something in me. Fuck knows, because I didn't. I got out of my cell though. When they wanted to revise and put on a piece, it meant I could get out of my usual duties. You know what it's like, I jumped at it. Mind you, it wasn't all plain sailing. One guy had to be asked to leave because of some argy-bargy, if you know what I mean. I loved the rehearsal process, everything that went into building it up. We put on a play in the nick for the fellow inmates, staff and guests. And our family, of course. I was bricking it. I had a lead role. But you know what, see, at the end of the day, we fucking smashed it. I did some mere training with a company when I was released and have been a jobbing actor ever since. <laughs> I've had my fair shares of ups and downs like any other actor, but I volunteer today to get into your prison, because I hope, like myself, somebody else will take performing into their heart and go down a very different route in life and become into a positive space. My name's Chiara Berardelli. I live in Glasgow and in 2018 I recorded an album called Sea Monster inspired by my experience of being childless, not by choice. I experienced grief through not having the children I'd always wanted which is something I didn't really understand at the time. I, I thought somebody had to die or you had to lose something tangible to experience grief. This song Someone New is my explanation of what I felt as I started to come through the tunnel of grief and started to feel again, started to feel like life might be worth living and that there was a future and I wanted to be part of it. There was a time Anything to change the air I breathe. 
Hi, I'm Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian and you're listening to Writer's Block Radio Hour, only on Supersound Radio. 
The Long Haul, written and performed by Dealey Miller. My phone's at 58% and no Wi-Fi. <laughs> I have to take notes on what I'm doing. Oh my God, these stairs. Where is that? I'm waiting. Voice memo, note to contact tracer. I'm waiting for the sixth train at 59th and Lex Northeast corner. Note to myself, don't sing ABBA when you're climbing stairs. Thank heavens, the platform. And note to myself, don't keep your phone plugged in all the time. The longer it's plugged in, the shorter time it holds a charge. Let me find my charger. Oh, man. I need an extra hand to hold my bag, look for the charger, and take notes. Damn, I put my charming gloves in my bag. Now I have to clean the inside, too. What are you looking at? 51%? Where is that charger? This is so weird. On a normal day, that Russian lady would be climbing the stairs with me at 8, 10 a.m. She'd lean against the wall, and I'd lean on this blue column. Note to self and contact tracer. I'm not leaning. I don't know who or what touched it. The phone will never last till I get to the doctor. Where is that charger? Oh, the train, great. I'll be there just in time. Normally, that homeless man with a cart would be in the far double seat asleep, smelling like something the cat dragged in. I wonder, I wonder if I could smell him now. I give up. My charger is not here. It's gone. But hallelujah, the door closed, and no one's pushing. Note to contact tracer. This is the first time I've been on the train in six months. I mean, I'm actually going somewhere other than my bedroom. The infection rate is under 1% today. I keep up on everything. I, I gotta sit. Okay, six feet to the sides, I know. But is it six feet across on a subway? Oh, wow, I'm out of breath again. Probably my mask. The breathing is why I'm going to the doctor. So contact tracer. If, if it's COVID, you'll know that about everyone that I've seen today. Look at that lady's fake tan. 9.30 in the morning is too early for a fake tan. By 9.30, I used to be having my second latte at work. I do not miss customer service. I'm sorry, there are no refunds on swimsuits that have been worn. I can't believe people are swimming. I do miss my paycheck. Ooh, that guy. Note to contact tracer. I can't tell if he's homeless, but there's a guy with a gym bag burbling jazz into the air. His mask is below his chin, I'm moving. It looks like those two in the scrubs are doctor. These are the people you should contact. 47%. Oh, a child touched my wrist this morning outside my elevator. He had a three on his t-shirt and he looked very asymptomatic. I wanted to take his mother's head off, but her older kids had masks. And that was the first time I've been touched in months. 
otherwise contact Tracer. I've been in lockdown since March. Oh, if you need an address for the kid, it's 666 East 83rd Street. No, it isn't. That's I Love Lucy's address. That's what I used to say for a laugh in the, in, in the days when humor went viral. <laughs> in real life, that put Lucy in the Cornell Medical Center. Just check my wallet. You'll find my address. I don't want to say it in case someone's listening. Note to self, no one else is taking notes. I guess I've been talking to myself for a while, except for that week in July, when I was so pissed off at myself for accomplishing nothing in all this time. So I packed up all the clothes I don't use. They're still in my apartment because I put them together. Before I got COVID, I thought even though I washed them twice on hot, who would want them now? May I help you, asshole? Are you really standing over me? Do you know what six feet is? There are hundreds of seats on this car and you choose to. Oh, you're looking at the map. Fine. I'll move. Even though I sat here to be away from everyone. You're welcome. Every day it's something else. The damn idiotic, stupid, fascist dictator, another friend sick. They took my mailbox away, my mailbox, and I am so tired. I'm tired of the news, of lies, of, of Hallmark movies, of TV binging. I'm tired of Zooming. I'm tired of tuna and pasta. I'm tired of listening to my upstairs neighbor run the New York Marathon around his living room every day between three and four. I'm tired of being tired like Madeline Kahn and Blazing Saddles. I just am. I am. I made it to work. I'm out of here. But I was going to the doctor. Look, a teenager. Hey! 36%. Hey! Hey! Hey, could you maybe jump my phone for a minute? It needs a charge. Really? You would do that? Let's connect them. Thank you so much, because I'm taking notes so someone knows what happens to me in case, you know. I mean, most people, they don't want to talk to me when they find out I had COVID already. Really, I'm better. I'm better. I've tested negative for weeks. What can I do for you for being so nice? Thank you is not enough. Here, here, take this 10. I don't want to hand it to you. Just, just take it. No, take it. But make sure you use hand sanitizer afterwards. You're very sweet. But thank you is not enough. I like your glasses. I'll never make it to my doctor now. He didn't want to see me anyway because he said it's the hospitals doing the studies on the long haul after. All the symptoms that surprise you. Yesterday I thought I was having a heart attack, but I tested negative again. There's a hospital upstairs, isn't there? I got to tell you, you're the best thing to happen to me all day, all month, in months. Hey, hey, I don't suppose you like ABBA. If you do, don't sing ABBA when you're climbing stairs. Note to contact Tracer. 
Thank you. This is Graham Morgan, and this is a piece called July at Night, Musing When the Midges Are Gone. I cannot claim that harsh monopoly. I know so many people who could. I cannot imagine the life of some of the people I see glimpses of on the television. But I do know what it is like to spend week after week desperate to die. I know what it's like to dream and hope for death, for months that becomes year that continues for so long that you know longer why it is that it would be such a release. I know what it is like to look at Wendy's wee twins and think, but my son, where are you? What do you do? What do you wish for? Who do you dream of? And feel blank with the sadness of it, lost in the wondering of what damage I might have done to him without the knowing of it. And I feel even more lost in that blankness where I realise that this separation that once I could not bear for one moment longer now just nags like the slightest twinge of the morning after a night of drinking just a little too much. And I know what it is like to have someone spit at me, to throw out the words of schizo and psycho alongside her punches and kicks, and to know that she still believed she loved me, despite viewing me as alien, almost another species, certainly not someone who would pass muster in the company of others. I know so many things I could give you a long, aching list, and chief amongst it would be loneliness, where you ache for just one person to light up, at catching sight of you walking in the street. I would hold my list out, all tremulous. I would be waiting for the smile and the hug, that motherly hug that says, Hush now, it'll be all right. And yet I know that at that first suggestion, of pity or even of validation, I would bat the comfort away, bristle and smile a dark dismissal, desperate to return to my own dark version of myself. For these reasons, I tend to say... That are from those bitter years I have now learnt about the value and liberation of well-being and contentedness. But I haven't. It crept up on me all unawares and found me looking the other way, tugged at my shirt sleeves and asked me to smile. Once I was alone and I had no money and my bed was a mattress on the floor and I shrank from each letter and phone call. But worst of all, in my mid-late life, I hadn't the slightest clue about adulthood about living with myself. Learning to shop for clothes and to pay the bills was confusing. Much more confusing was that painful attempt to create friendships, to learn to walk in my new village with two women, their dogs and children, learning to laugh, learning they wanted my company and the meals I cooked, the babysitting I did, finding out that the children liked bedtime stories and the dogs liked walk, and people brightened when they saw me walk into the cafe they were sitting in. And now, many miles away, I remember yesterday evening, sitting in the garden in the evening sun, drinking my whiskey while the clothes flapped on the line, magpies hopped in the branches of the tree above me, and wood pigeons called in the woods across the road, and I learned the lesson my love has helped me begin to finally start to learn. It is nothing much, but for those such as me, who see success in the sunrise of a far-off desert, or the need to frill at the sight of whales in a gale in order to relate the story later, or drop into the conversation, the conferences they've spoken at, and the people they have met. 
is that slow recognition that making breakfast for the family in the morning, daring to be silly in front of the children, cooking tea and washing the dishes after a long day at work, believing that you are lovable when you can't believe it, or this evening cuddling my love after a long day of just doing. The simplest of things, saying I love you too to wee Charlotte, saying goodnight to James who was busy on his Xbox, taking Dash the dog out for his late night wee, looking forward to the breeze of the cool wind on my skin through the window as I sleep, the tiny pleasures of coffee in the morning, the smell of the sea, the latest story on the world service, when I wake up very late or very early depending on your perspective. Buying Wendy Muller light toffee yogurt because she likes it, and learning that if I need to try to the world, change the world, that I need to start with myself, and that the game changer will be trying to tell a joke I know will go flat when in company, because the people around me will smile at my awkwardness, and also smile at my hesitant smile, that says I want to show them all how much I love being in their lives, and how I find joy at being part of the life I had thought it I needed to discard. My grand mission is now to delight in Netflix, to relish eating a takeaway in company, to walk side by side, to pause to take photographs of the flowers, to delight people on Instagram who I do not know, to cut the grass occasionally, load the dishwasher, cook tea, relish sitting beside the pond we made out of a guinea pig page, drinking whiskey while Wendy drinks tea, Charlotte swings in her hammock, and James waves occasionally from his room. I need little more than that. That is where I find my contentedness. A short extract from Holding On by Glenn Dixon, performed by Cindy Campbell. Hangovers. The older I get, the more severe they seem. Sometimes I find it really difficult to concentrate and stay connected to some of the conversations I'm having. I'm not being rude or selfish, I just can't blank out the other stuff that's in here. You have to take your hat off. I drift away into my own darkness. To stop drinking himself, you know, to show support. I was shopping a few weeks ago. I was trying to cross this busy road and I was holding these shopping bags. I was standing with my feet balancing just on the curb. Toes scrunched up inside my shoes. Rain lashing down. My hands were gripping onto these plastic handles that were tearing into my fingers. Cars and buses were shooting past in both directions and all the time this rain kept on falling. And I had this thought. I could just take one step after the other, walk straight onto the road. Three or four small steps would be enough. I could see myself slipping onto the wet concrete and falling, right under the wheels of a totally random car. I pictured the driver behind the wheel. Possibly his young family. I remember thinking this would stay with them for the rest of their lives. I couldn't possibly put them through this. I stepped back onto the footpath and walked home. 
hating myself. Lorraine, are you still listening to me? Yes, I'm listening to you. You are not alone. Written and performed by Christian Zanoni. Can't say I know more. Can't say I've seen more. Can't say it felt like only I could feel the pain and only I could. But later I found out that I was not alone. The difference, only a matter of circumstance. I've been there, you know. Just to have someone on the phone. You are not alone. You're having a panic attack. Deep breath. One. Two. Three. What was it the therapist said? These thoughts aren't real. Just watch them pass. They're just thoughts. Ramblings. There's no reality in them. Just watch them past. <laughs> no worries. Imposter syndrome. I read about that. Do I watch people and think I've got to hide from them? Do they know what I think? Where did it all go wrong? The lasting feeling of being a failure. Can they just go away with a healthy decision, standing in line, ordering a dirty great big blueberry muffin and an increase in endorphin at the excitement and rush to the head that you're having a sweet treat? Will this help you forget? Will it help to make you feel good, even just for a while? Take a long drag on your e-cigarette, that's it. Kind of makes you feel sick though. It's kind of like you enjoy the chronic feeling of feeling sick with everything. With life. Go for a walk. That's good for you. Hang on. I feel guilty now. i got shit to do, you know. Play with your son. That's all. Give that little bundle of mischief your time. Come on. Some days I can't sleep at night. And then it's an early start with the baby. Clone. He doesn't know. He's ahead of the curve. A true rolling stone. Not like his daddy. Don't even have the energy to play with your kid. What's wrong with you? What's right with you? Again, they're just thoughts. They are observable. The therapist says, cut to three hours later, and I've wet shoes, mud in my jacket, sweat from a hundred trips to the outdoor slide. I'm buzzing. My head aches from laughing so much. My son is the picture of health. I've forgotten to observe my thoughts. I'm happy. Hang on, wasn't I supposed to watch my thoughts? But I was in the moment, in a flow. Are these therapists for real, man? Ugh. Later, putting my baby to bed, I hear my auntie ringing my ears. He should be going to his cot on his own and you should be able to leave him to fall asleep. That kid will have problems otherwise. Ugh. Why can't folk mind their business? Nah, it's just a thought. She just means... Kids in general, and she's right. But my boy's a warrior, and he just loves to party. He goes till he drops, just like his mama. 
was time to teach him the routine. A good portion of the day lies in tatters. The house is like a burst couch. Finally, I walk downstairs after putting my wee rascal to bed. A half hour later, I'm sitting and thinking. Mother half has gone to bed. No, don't leave me to think my own thoughts. I need to be seen, to be understood, to wind down. You're having a panic thought, not a panic attack. Chill, make some tea, be kind to yourself. You are not your thoughts. Eileen, written by Vivian Lamond and performed by Barbara Ashworth. It was the 21st of October, 99, but I'll always remember that day as if it was yesterday. Nora blew through that door with a wilderness worse than a wicked nor'easter. Jimmy Nothers, that no-count cheating, lying low-life son of Satan, had done her wrong for the last time. Jimmy was dead, done in by a single clean shot to the heart. On the local law, Nabnor is a prime suspect for pulling the trigger. She stood trial, all the time swearing her innocence. I tell you true, ain't no way no how that Nora had the gumption to kill that man. No matter how many times his fist tried to bound the prettiness out of her. The jury believed her. She got off on account of insufficient evidence. They never found the murder weapon. After the trial, Nora left town, moved up north and started a new life. She found real love Remarried and is a damn happy woman. 21st of October, 1999. A day when a sharpshooter's sister had to step in to take a life of another in order to save another. The weapon? Well then, the Atlantic never gives up its secrets. I used to like that place. I spent quite a bit of time in there. I thought they understood what I said. I mean, I used to talk to them. Same at the factory. I used to talk about things, and these men, they used to listen whenever I had anything to say. It was all right. Trouble was, used to have kind of hallucinations. They weren't hallucinations, they... I used to get the feeling I could see things very clearly. Everything was so clear. Everything used... Everything used to get very quiet. Everything got very quiet. All this quiet and this clear sight, it was... (sighs) 
But maybe I was wrong. Anyway. Someone must have said something. I didn't know anything about it. Some kind of lie must have got around, and this lie went round. Thought people started being funny in that cafe. Factory. Couldn't understand it. Then one day, they took me to a hospital right outside London. They got me there. I didn't want to go. Tried to get out quite a few times. It wasn't very easy. They asked me questions in there. They got me in and they asked me all sorts of questions. Well, I told them when they wanted to know what my thoughts were. Mm. And one day, this man, the head doctor, I suppose it was, he, he called me in. He said, he told me I had something. He said, They'd concluded their examination, that's what he said, and he showed me a pile of papers and he said that I'd got something, some complaint. He said... Just said that, you see. You've got this thing, that's your complaint, and we've decided, he said, that in your interest there's only one course we can take. He said, we're going to do something to your brain. And if we don't, you'll be in here for the rest of your life. But if we do, you stand a chance, he said. You can go out and live like the others. Trying to Understand, written and performed by Donna Latham. You conned me, Private Calvin Waters. And I'm trying, really trying, trying to determine how I fell for it. You were optimistic, productive, chugged away at work, slayed at your drawing board, sped along the bike trail. Why did you hide your depression? Play me for a fool. I thought we shared everything. Everything. I'm not angry. I'm just so dreadfully sorrowful. Sad for you, for us, for all of our veterans. I'm sad for humanity. I'm trying. Really trying. Trying to find a bit of solace in this devastation. Like, like, thank God it wasn't murder. Or, or thank God he took no one with him. How twisted is that? My solace is perverse. Sardonic. I'm grasping at straws filled with cyanide. You know what, Cal? Suicide is pain that gets passed along. You carried it until it crushed you. 
and then you pass the baton to me. And now I'm a member of that secret society, sibling survivors of suicide. But if there's any bit of hope to clutch to for dear life, it's that the worst thing that ever happened to me already happened. Nothing, not a fucking thing scares me now. Hello, Peter Moan here. More readings from the blog Cheers, Govan Hill. I can be anything I want. Fitter, faster, longer, stronger. Why can't I be more beautiful? Maybe I should go running, get outdoors, hit the road, burn off calories, save money I'd otherwise spend on booze and fags, avoid the hidden killers of salt and sugar in our processed diet, put two fingers up to agribusiness and the industrialisation of food at the same time. Lycra, plimsolls, watch me go. Through the back courts, up stairwells and down alleys, past tenements and basements and intersections and thoroughfares. Keep track of my stats as I go. Shoe size, pin number, dying wish, goal of the season, where I see myself in five minutes' time. Help me reach my optimum self-loathing target. Soon I feel lost and disorientated, breathless and sweating, red-faced and nauseous. And that's me just thinking about it. Welcome home, Govan Hill. Don't eat much veg. Should eat more veg. Don't eat much veg. Apart from my greens, of course. Grass. Absinthe. Limeade. The filthy habits of West of Scotland dead man. Heavy smoke. Big drink. Eat shit. Live alone. Lying down. Fear, blood pressure, poverty, heart attack, loneliness, depression, dementia, patron saint of bowel and pancreas and prostate and colon. Of course I want to be healthier and wealthier. Who wouldn't he? It's impossible to conceive of not living as long as possible and making as much money as you can. It's in your nature. Your duty is etched into the very essence of your being. Do not want those things as non-human. Hi, my name's Davy, and I want to be ill and poor. Welcome to Glasgow, ya madman. What are you having? There's not much to behold outside. Tenement opposite. Loud music. Man in his pants at the window. The horizon's a building just like mine, blocking the view. An imaginary prison is still a real prison. Just because it's made up doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm free to leave, but I can't find the door. 
Tracy, from across the street, fell asleep in the living room, accidentally set fire to the couch and whoosh, the whole place went up in a red glow and black smoke. Close get evacuated, whole street woken up, Scots marks up three stories on the outside. Aye, cheers Tracy. Salvation lies within, hopefully. Is that it? Is that what it is? Let me know, Govan Hill. I felt such a sense of relief. I felt safe for the first time since it happened. Empowered. The vending machine? My guilt from putting myself in harm's way. I, I read about that too, that honeymooner in Gainesville, Florida, who rocked a vending machine and fell on top of him and killed him? The dog, though. Hmm. I don't know. The forbidden part of your psyche. Murderous rage. Yeah, but at first... I thought he was after me. The door said danger. Actually, no. It said high voltage. Call NJGE before digging. Jersey Gas and Electric. Was Richard anywhere in all this? Oh. Oh, my God. The dog. What? A Rottweiler, Elliot. Big head, massive shoulders direct descendant of the dog used by the Roman armies to guard their camps. I didn't know that. And digging. Who do I dig with and who's dangerous? Who could I sick on that son of a bitch to tear him to shreds? Oh. Let me tell you something. No feeling has ever been so sweet as to see that pig beg and plead and scream for his life because the justice system is fucked up, Elliot. Richard's got his attorney looking into this at $300 an hour. But meanwhile, that employee of the month cocksucker is back on the street. No one's gonna stop him, you? Jennifer, civilization. Oh, don't worry. I'm not going to break the social compact, but that's not saying. There's not a certain satisfaction in knowing that I could have that asshole squashed like a bug if I wanted. Fighting the Fear, written by Benjamin Peel and performed by Glenn Dixon. Let me introduce myself as I'm your worst nightmare. I give you cold sweats if you even think about me for a minute. That's why I'm never mentioned. No, just before I do say hello, consider this. Every actor dries at some point in their career. That's part and parcel of you being in this business. You can be in the middle of a run and think you know your role in the play inside out and then... It strikes like a thief in the night, and you suddenly find a fellow cast member looking at you panic-stricken. You know it's your line. But which one? Even if they mouth the beginning of the line at you, or you get a prompt, you might think, well, 
I'm sure I just said that. See how even a long pause can begin to become disconcerting. And that's where the rot can sink in. And it's a way where I can begin to worm my way inside your head and gnaw away at your confidence. But what I really want, what I really crave, is to shatter it completely with fright so that you never return to the stage again. Oh, I've succeeded many a time over the years with some very famous names. Google me and you'll find them. Some of them have returned to live performing decades later, but were never quite the same afterwards. I can prey on anyone at any time in their careers. I'm more effective in the theatre, but my malign influence can affect TV and film actors too. First nights are one of my favourite times to attack. You may have had a successful rehearsal period and an almost flawless dress, but once an audience is in the space, no matter how large or small, that's when I can work on those nerves and invade your head space and begin to sedulously sow my seeds of doubt. You may have your routines and superstitions, but I've been around a very long time and learnt many cunning tricks to counter them. You've made it easier for me over the years, too. As in the early days, the actors could see the spectators, but the invention of even brighter electric light means the audience are in a black hole that the performers cannot see into and are exposed and alone on their fluorescent island. At my very worst, I can induce sweating, trembling and palpitations. The afflicted actor seizes up both physically and mentally. The mouth goes dry. Breathing becomes short and shallow. Vision blurs and concentration disappears. I can even trigger vomiting and diarrhoea. And no one's going to go on stage after that. Are they? According to one medical study made about me, the stress an actor experiences during a performance can equal that of a minor car crash. Performers often use the language of war, as in knocking an audience dead or slaying them in the aisles. That's just them acknowledging the power I wield over them. But I don't always get my own way, much to my consternation. Many people who are susceptible to stage fright still go into the performing arts. It's like they need to confront or go into battle with me. Can I be defeated? I'd like to think not. But then some people go to extraordinary lengths to try and keep me in the shadows, some of which shock even me. My best opponents have been those who harness me and use the tension to work in their favour. They use their anxiety to improve their performance. I will always be there though, lurking in the wings, ready to pounce and ensnare you when you least expect it. So keep enjoying what you do. But no, I am a never-present threat just biding my time. 
I have plenty of that. Leaving a Hole by Ariana Rose, Miami Beach, Florida. Performed by Ariana Rose. You read a sad story and think, that will never happen to us. Feel so bad for them, but glad it's not us. We're magical. Nothing will touch us. And every day that goes by, you sigh a tiny sigh of relief that you got through one more day, scot-free. You're in the chair at the dental surgeon's, about to get a bad tooth pulled. It's a Shishi medical building in South Beach. The dental chair looks out on Biscayne Bay, and coupled with the new age music they pipe in, you feel like you're floating somewhere between sea and sky. It feels unfair to have so much pain in such a beautiful place. Miami Beach is about fun in the sun, not pain so bad you want to run into the forever gridlock that is Ocean Drive and hope some 20-something visiting from Ohio runs you over. Pull the tooth out. Pull the tooth out. Pull the tooth out. And then the world stops as you go to pay the bill. A text from your brother that your nephew has gone missing on a solo camping trip out west. Your brother and sister-in-law are flying out to find him. You hold the phone in one hand and the prescription for a painkiller in the other. The wheel of misfortune just turned and the pointer went click, click, click on the wheel till it landed on your family. Your brother calls and the news is not looking good. It is the second most heartbreaking call you will ever receive from him. You feel your heart break wide open for him, wide open for his wife, and you pray like you've never prayed before. An angry, fierce mantra for your nephew to stay alive, stay alive until we can find you. You make plans to fly home. You're with your mother when your brother calls to tell her to prepare herself that her oldest grandson is most likely gone. The sound of her screams is something imprinted deep in your ears, into each cell. The space where the tooth used to be aches, and you are grateful for the distraction. You go home. You all go home to wait for the searchers, wait for the news, and the waiting is the worst part. Your tongue seeks out the empty space in your mouth the same time as your mind and your heart explore the emptiness where your nephew was. You can't seem to get your body or your mind to stop exploring the whole, the nothingness where there once was somethingness. The space where your nephew used to be starts where the tooth used to be and emanates outward in a circle of infinity. Make it stop. Make it stop. Make it stop. And then three months of this. Three months of not knowing, of knowing he is gone but not knowing yet. No proof yet. You get the phone call from your brother. You're sitting on the edge of the bed, 
listening to him say, They found him. He's gone. And you listen to him burst into tears, and your world cracks open, and you know you weren't lucky. Your family didn't get passed over. You are forever touched now by the loss of a 20-year-old boy who should have had his whole life to live, and you will never forget the sound of your brother's voice, your mother's wail, the knowing everything is, now and always will be, different for your family. You wish there was a grief surgeon who could just pull it out. You can numb the pain for a short time, but the hole is always there, and his absence is so big, it fills the room, it fills the sky, it fills the day, it fills the space between you and every member of your family. Zachary is everywhere now in that space. You are left with the hole in the mouth and the hole in your heart when the universe broke wide open and welcomed him. The wheel turns. The pointer bends. Click. 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 Stay back! Excuse me, ma'am. I just wanted to stay back. Huh? Patients aren't allowed in the nurse's station. Well, I just <clears throat> wanted to, uh, to we'll turn... Just, when you're outside, we'll discuss whatever problem you have, okay? The patients are not allowed in the nurse's station. All right? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Hey, Billy. Thank you. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? That music is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy. Yeah, I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to shout? Huh? What you probably don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have. Your hand is staining my window. Sorry, ma'am. All right. Mr. McMurphy, your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. Don't get upset, Mr. McMurphy. I'm not getting upset, Miss Pilbo. It's just that I don't want anyone to try and slip me salt, Peter. You know what I mean? It's all right, Miss Pilbo. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally... I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. But I don't think you'd like it, Mr. McMurphy. You'd like it, wouldn't you? Well, not? Give it to me. Good. Power of radio. Bad weather. At the racetrack. In the shower. Oops, sorry. All things that never actually happened. But while listening, you pictured them all, didn't you?
You see, radio uses theatre of the mind and has a one-to-one connection with every single person listening. So if you want to get your business message across, then there really is no more intimate, creative or cost-effective way than using local radio. For more information about advertising on Supersound Radio Scotland, email supersoundradioscotland at gmail.com and we won't send our fire-breathing, water-boiling, toaster-popping crowd over to see you. Yeah, and once again, that's not real. Local radio advertising. Try it today. Hello, my name's Kev Kiernan. Um, I'm from Glasgow and this is a poem about my mental health, past and present. It's called I Am Fireworks. Once I stood upright and walked alone, you and husband washed hands of me. I despised you both. Despite you both, I survived. And I really survived, unlike others. Both of you could have taught me, but I'll teach you now. What you needed was love. If you had it, you hid it. If you saw it, you blinked. If you felt it, you shrugged. I'll show you how to light a fucking fuse, mother. For I am fireworks. I am explosions. I am heat. You... Well, you're that cold air. You are bad rain. You are ugly clouds. You are dread. You were dead to me. But now I hear there's my mother who may actually die. In news anticipated, you played the old Hodgkin's lymphoma trick. I'm only sad because it's not dad. Why can't your husband get sick? This would build space for us to meet and breathe. Me at your deathbed, whispering sour nothings in your ear. Trust me, you don't want that. In any case, you'll need a translator. Because we don't speak the same. I heard you don't even know what my favourite soup is. And I do feel bad. Not from blood ties, mind. I have feelings for all humans, despite what you did. If maybe you had a hug for me, just the once. You didn't call me either since I left. Not once. Extremely young when I got abandoned, thrown permanently to the wolves. Previous years' training you put me through helped a lot. I wanted to be made of steel anyway. Did you know wolves won't bite into steel? Metal is cold and severe. It protects, but it also encases. Of course, I've kept some of the steel. I use a bit of it to hold my nerve. Some more of it hides in my eyes. Is it still cold and lonely where you are? Does husband still freeze your bones in terror? Did you never try to get free? Branch off solo? I bet that you did, but you got scared, didn't you? I stopped trying because you never tried. And I only tried because others convinced me that I should.
Of course they didn't know. It's a darker corner of the human condition than what they are used to. Fuck you, mother. We did not deserve this. I am fireworks and I think it came from you. Your husband doesn't have it in him. So it must be you. Are you fireworks? You were missing the entire time. Never defended, never protected. Except that once when you stopped him. Do you remember? Of course you do. In your eyes, a distant concern flickered. Or was it just sorrow? Or was it shame? Purple, yellow, brown, bruised stripes across my ten-year-old back. Did he go too far for even you? Did you know that the teachers at school knew? Don't worry, they did nothing. Secret's safe with them. Your husband, my dad, rained down punches and kicks on me. One special occasion, I got treated to leather. He's lucky I left in the end. His time was coming and he knew that. That's why he ejected his boy. You don't know the mess you caused, the cruelty you inflicted. My brains and my memories were a tangled mess. I was the only person I knew who didn't get taught how to, just how to. My emotional intelligence never got off the starting line. Real Kev and deep freeze until new millennium. How difficult it is to reach through solid steel and find a frozen preserved core. You can still hear drip dripping of the slow thaw. I was supposed to be brilliant, remember? Top of the class, class clown. I am fireworks. First teachers hinted at same. Very clever boy. Or amazing potential, really. But too disruptive. Attention seeker and attention seeker. That Boy seeks out attention, and then blah blah and blah. What I was seeking was nourishment, just a little bit of encouragement. I wanted structured, higher level teaching. What a waste. Fry and fireworks. What I got was punishment and punishment, so I learned to receive punishment. I wonder what I could have been. You shouted about not wasting all entire time, but you let me to waste the biggest waste. You shrugged me off at every conceivable turn, but I am fireworks. You tried to govern an ungovernable. You never even tried to light my fuse. You, mother, refused to let me go, to let me blow to grow. I'm still fireworks. I'm waiting for the gunpowder to dry. I have steeled myself to be ready once dripping stops. And thaw is almost over. Somewhere I shall lament your odious regret when you suddenly look up at a thousand embers falling quietly in this screaming night. I'll have to shower you in cheap lighters so you can light the fucking fuse.
Babagaki. Written and performed by Stephanie McGill from the Wirral. It was the happiest time of my life. The best bit was just around the corner. Everyone kept telling me this. But they couldn't see inside my head. We'd been trying for a while. Because of my age, I was referred straight away. That was the October. In January, we were told that Paul's bits were in full working order, so to speak. But mine? Not so much. My eggs were scarce. The ones I did have were well past their sell-by date, so IVF was out the question. Egg donation was our best bet, and we were sent off to either rustle up ten grand or find a woman with spare eggs to give. Easy peasy. It was an absolute head fuck. I was on a mission. A male friend said to me, You're not doing that thing to Paul, are you? Where you ring to say, Get home, I'm ovulating. It's dead off putting for fellas, that you know. I found three egg donors, two distant cousins, and my mum's hairdresser. Aren't people amazing? But then, my period was two weeks late. In the January, I was barren, and by the March, I was with child. I got pregnant, naturally. I got pregnant, and then I got mad. Not angry mad, just absolutely crazy crackers, becoming convinced the reason the hospital said I was infertile was because they knew that I would be a terrible mother. Paul, already confused by my reluctance to engage with anything to do with the pregnancy, had to drag me to prenatal classes where I sat sulking like a 36-year-old teenager. During a session on breathing through the pains of labour, I announced that I didn't mind the getting the baby in bit. I'd actually quite enjoyed it, but it had just occurred to me that the getting out bit might be a problem and I didn't really fancy it. I developed PGP. The ligaments in the pelvis become stiff and less stable. I couldn't stand up or sit down. Walking was agony. I didn't bloom in pregnancy. Oh no. I went berserk, totally in denial about the fact I was having a baby. I was interviewing some poor woman for a job and she nodded at my belly, grinned, asked me when I was due and I said, sorry. She looked mortified, thinking she'd just picked on the fat woman who held her future employment in her hands. A colleague made light of it, blamed my baby brain. Awkward laughter all round. Sleep was scarce. Intrusive thoughts and pelvic pain saw to that. If I did sleep, the most disturbing dreams would come to me. And then the images started flashing up during the day too. Various scenarios where... I was almost dead and the baby was in a sling on my front and no one wanted to save us. I went to the river. The rain was lashing and the moon was high. I was howling in frustration. The disorder with my pelvis meant that I couldn't lift my fucking legs to get over the railings to throw myself in. I was crying and laughing. It was then I saw the fisherman staring at me. In shock, I think. He was incredibly short and looked so ridiculous in his wet weather gear. 
that I thought I must have made him up in my head too. I turned to him. He clocked my swollen belly and shock turned to sadness. He had the audacity to look more upset than I did and I was the one trying to top myself. I clicked the button on the key fob, wobbled over to the car. He stood watching me until I drove away. It wasn't like in the dream. Someone did save us, just by looking me in the eye. I was diagnosed with prenatal depression and anxiety, prescribed cognitive behavioural therapy. I engaged with the treatment. I lied on the Edinburgh Scale questionnaire the psychologist gave me. You basically give yourself a rating of how up the wall you've been, a barometer of bonkers. I started to get better in that I acknowledged the pregnancy, but then worse, because I then believed my baby would be taken away from me. That's why I lied. Even my labour wasn't straightforward. My best friend phoned me on the maternity ward to ask me how I was doing and I said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just looking to see if any of the windows open fully so I can climb out and escape. I'm going to run away. I was six stories up. Luckily, she's very straight talking and told me to go to bed and get to sleep. I lay under the covers and cried. The hospital cleaner came and sat quietly by the bed and placed her hand on my back. I was taken to theatre for a C-section. He entered the world through the sunroof. (laughs) Once I was back in my hospital room, the same cleaner popped her head in to make sure I was okay. And here he was, in my arms. And they let me keep him. And the pelvis pain went. And the anxiety left. And the depression lifted away. He came and saved my life. I won't tell him that though. It's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. And he might just throw it back at me during the teenage years. I was about 16 when I was diagnosed with depression. My doctors think that it stemmed from my parents divorcing uh, and struggling with school, really. It all started when my father died when I was at high school. It all started in university during my final year. It all started when I was 16. I came out of a relationship I was in at the time and I started purging and self-harming. I first realised I had a mental health problem when I was 15. I was cutting myself every day and crying all the time. Soon after the attack happened, I started to feel throes of anxiety. Um, Panic attacks started creeping in. I first realised that I had a problem when I really wanted to stop all the things I was doing, but I just couldn't seem to stop no matter how badly I wanted to. I was suffering from hallucinations, which at the time were really scary because I didn't know what was reality and and what was my imagination. At my worst I felt like I was absolutely worthless, alienating and destructive, with no help of recovery. I felt like I had this black cloud hanging constantly over my head and it's just a feeling that stays with you and you can't seem to get away from it at all and you feel completely alone. I felt like this was going to be it forever. I felt as though I'd never 
reach any of my ambitions or my goals. I felt like I was in my own bubble, hearing muffled voices of people around me. When I had my first mental break, proper mental breakdown, and I decided to run away from home. I felt like the world would be better off without me. My mental health problem means that I go through many highs and lows which I struggle to control. Sometimes I just want to hide away. I feel that I have to make everyone else happy and every day is a struggle, but I just remind myself that I'm strong. My mental health problem means that sometimes the world can be a very scary, very dangerous and very dark place. Everyday tasks can become the most mammoth missions that seem like you're never going to be able to do them. My mental health problem means that uh, life is hard. The hardest thing about having a mental health problem is people not realising that there's something wrong with you and that you can be really ill even if you look absolutely fine. I think especially having an eating disorder, people assume that you're going to look a certain way or be a certain size or a shape or you know, they imagine certain stereotypes that aren't necessarily true. Like the social and in my case like the cultural stigma associated with it. If I'm having a bad day, no matter how small it is, it feels like the whole world's crashing in on me and things just keep getting worse. What really reassured me was knowing that there are so many other people out there who've got the same diagnosis as me and that I'm not alone. Having my two rescue dogs um, to look after and to take care of because I know that they need me around and they're always happy to see me. So no matter how bad my day is or how awful everything seems to be, I know that they need me and they always make me smile. Having such a great network of friends, family and people who are out there who can help I'd look at how far I've come and everything that I'd gone through and realise that I am still standing. It really helps when my friends treat me the way that they did six years ago before this all started. I was that happy, laid-back person and that's the person that I want to be and aspire to be again. It really helps me when people just treat me normally. I'd like people to treat, to treat me like, um, like you would your own mother, I guess. That's, yeah. And that's a good way to treat people. Now, I'm not expecting you to understand straight away the ins and the outs of what I'm going through. More ins than outs these days. In fact, my only in is in this bed, hooked up to this machine like a sleeping spider trapped in his own web of tubes and wires, with his own thoughts to keep him company. So let me break it down for you. Someone like me who is in this condition is now unresponsive to light, sound, and verbal communication. The big threes that we all take for granted. Quite a lot for you to take in. I know it comes as quite a shock when you see me in this position. When you realize that my brain has gone through a major change and is now only functioning at its lowest stage of alertness. I know what you might be thinking. I didn't always use my brain when I was on the outside. I'll be the first to put my hand up to this. Yeah, I behaved like a real jerk and did some stupid shit. I know I hurt many people along the way. Now just look at me. Talk about severe payback. But you still come to see me. And I do appreciate the sentiment behind all of your creative visits. But 
please stop attempting to trigger reactions. I am not in some two-bit soap opera. There's no Vaseline on my lens. You can't shake and wake up someone like me who is in a coma, like you can someone who has just fallen asleep. Even by playing me your music or showing me old high school yearbooks or letting me smell my favorite foods. In fact, do you know how crazy these make me feel? The takeaway Chinese food or the clink of the glasses full of bourbon that you are toasting me with. And no, splashing a little on me like you were a Catholic priest delivering Holy Communion is not doing me any favors. It's pretty cruel, if you must know. It was liquor that got me into this mess, so please, can you just stop bringing it in? Brown bag it and take it out into the car park. Okay, a few more pointers. I'm still myself in here. My body might be wasting away and my skin that was once healthy and tanned is now pale and dried out, but I'm still me. I'm just a little more famous. You've read the papers and seen the headlines. There has already been demonstrations outside the hospital. Families and road safety campaigners are demanding tougher punishments to fit the consequences of crimes like mine. For a week or so, my family received so many death threats that they posted an armed guard outside my hospital door. This doesn't make any sense. Surely, they should have been protecting them in their homes. They were the ones at risk, and not me. I'm in a PVS, a persistent vegetative state. The nurses who look after me do it through clenched teeth and can't hide their hatred for me. One, in particular, a young Puerto Rican girl, tells me on a regular basis that I'm a lousy good-for-nothing child killer and that I deserve to rot in hell. Another orderly, who changes my sheets, threatens to put bleach into my drip or monkey around with my medication. And I really don't blame them. My mom has been holding a nightly vigil and praying for a miracle. I don't think she's thought things through. She's not the only one wanting me to wake up. If I do eventually come back from this, there will be serious questions asked, and I will be whisked away by the police. There will be a lengthy court case, and I'll eventually be sent to prison where I will be reminded of what I did on a daily basis. Some people say that if you're struggling to feel remorse, then you should personalize the situation by imagining that it was your friend or family member that had been harmed or killed. I really don't feel anything. I do, however, relive those last few moments. The sudden impact, his body on the bonnet and the car flipping over and shooting through the windscreen like a cannonball. And now I feel like I'm on the bottom of a swimming pool, weighted down and unable to reach the surface. I can see flashes and shaded shadows like hazy projections flickering and then disappearing like smoke. They say that time is supposed to heal all wounds. Well, the truth is that time does not heal anything. It merely passes. It is what we do during the passing of the time that helps. And I do nothing. But I'm still me. I'm still the guy who you graduated with, your neighbor who looks after your dog when you go on holiday, your work colleague, the best man at your wedding, 
Your brother. Your boyfriend. I'm still in here. Mind, written by Vivian Lamond and performed by Barbara Ashworth. Caroline's mind has loopholes where thoughts seep through crevices. Caroline's mind now wanders to places it used to know and finds memories distorted, places where her yesterdays are shrouded in surreal snippets of names and faces. Her voice babbles in angry broken word fragments filled with frustration. And she looks at me with vacant eyes, hoping I can help her escape her uncharted wilderness. I can't. I can't. This piece is called I'm Fine and is written by Christine Foster and read by Christine Foster in Canada. Hi, Mum. Oh, sorry, it, it isn't three yet. But I caught you. You're home. How's Dad? Good. Me? Fine? Fine. No. Thing is, I wanted to ask you something. Do you remember, I mean, I'm sure you remember, that you told me once that right after Mike and I were born, that you had a lot of trouble being happy for quite a while, and that you felt that it was somehow your fault because it happened both times, yeah? I mean, no, no, I know, of course you're over it now, but, but the thing is, I... No, God, no, Mum, no, cripes, I'm 48, God, no, that would be all I need. No, no, it's more, well, the thing is, Mum, Mum, could you promise to listen just for a few minutes, just till I'm done? Perfect. Thanks. Well, you know I've been trying to get healthier, exercise, and that I joined LA Fitness a few weeks ago. Anyway, I, th I think I told you, I tell all my friends, that they have this great Pilates teacher who gives a class twice a week, and she's very cool. She's from Brazil. She wears this great leopard print leotard, and she's really fun and inspiring, or she would be if she was there or anywhere if she existed. But the thing is... She doesn't. So, you see, I lied. I don't go twice a week. I haven't been once since I signed up. And I'm not doing spinach smoothies or keto or paleo. Most nights I have to lock the kitchen door at night so I don't go in and get an entire block of cheddar or a jar of Nutella and take it to my room. So, you see... The thing is, did you ever, have you ever felt 
so sad that you could hardly, and, and not just sad, you know, ashamed because you were sad. It, it's not so bad at school. It's not the kids. But in the staff room, well, you know, I don't, I don't even sit there much anymore. I usually just say I have to do some shopping or need to pick up something. I go and sit in the car. So, Mom, Mom, the thing is, I don't think I'm doing very well. So, I, I thought that it might be nice if I came down on Sunday. Would you mind? And I don't mind driving. It gives me something to concentrate on, which, which helps. And maybe we could talk. Just you and me. Mom, are you there? Mommy? Connection lost, Mom. Shit. Mom, where did I lose you? Oh, back at the fitness place. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Twice a week, absolutely. How's Dad? Good. Uh, me? Yeah. Oh, I'm fine. You know me, I'm always fine. I'm just fine. Core, written by Karen Fraser, performed by Karen Fraser. I'm not the person I wanted to be. I'm not the person I thought I'd be. I'm not talking about success or money. I'm talking about the core, the essence, the soul. I play many roles during the course of a day. The person people want to see, the one they need to see, and occasionally, the person I hoped I would be. I believe in strong, feisty women being exactly who they are. I believe that everyone should be exactly who they are. Except me. So, why am I so special? Why am I different? I'm neither of those things. I'm just weak and fundamentally flawed. The real core of my personality is pathetic. I struggle to cope with everyday life challenges. My fight or flight response triggers and I'm left shaken, crying, pathetic. You'll probably never see this side of me unless you're unfortunate enough to live with me. I have many faces and I'm very adept at wearing them. I placate myself by trying to be good at things being efficient and organised. Traits that don't endear me to other people. I've been a lifelong voyeur of the people whose personality traits I wish I had. But this hobby only ends up highlighting the 
rotten core inside. I've had flashes of self-esteem. Even short periods of time where I feel good about things I've done. I don't say these words for sympathy or pity. I say them in honesty and in the hope that by looking deep into myself I might find a compromise. I've spent most of my life seeking acceptance from others which left me with nothing but shame. Now I have a large thick wall that I retreat behind and a mask goes on and the play begins. I realise in my need to feel in control I keep everyone outside the wall. Occasionally people have gotten close and they catch a glimpse at the rottenness inside and they show me a mirror to see for myself. But I know, I see it every single day. I'm unable to accept the criticism and grow because I'm locked away so tightly. I will never be who I am as long as what is within me is fundamentally repellent to others. You are listening to Writer's Block Radio Hour, showcasing the best new writing from all over this big beautiful world of ours. Only on Super Sound Radio. So a few years ago, I really wasn't very well. Most nights, some days, I'd be resorting to burning myself and cutting myself repeatedly. I'd never done anything like this as a teenager. Now I was almost 50. Well, I didn't think there was any hope. I ended up in hospital after doing myself a mischief, as he would say. And I had a mini stroke. I really wasn't very well. I couldn't see any hope. But there was hope. There was hope in songs, in poems, in friends. There was hope, and I wrote a poem or two, and I made an album, and there was hope. So I'd like to do you a poem that I wrote at that time, and also play you a song. But first of all, here's the poem. It's called Banana Bread. Man alive, that's good banana bread, you said. I said, glad you like it. I'll bake banana bread whenever you need it. And I will will away and ward off all of your fears. Wipe away all of your tears whenever you're crying. Tell you you're beautiful and special and never be lying. 
and love you. I will love you. But if you don't want that, if you don't want all that, I will bake you banana bread whenever you need it. And now it's time for this song. This is called Just a Memory and it's an unreleased live version. The first time I ever sang the song and it was performed with my friends Adam, Andrew, Rory and Gavin. That's all I've got for you just now, a poem and a song, but also this message. Don't give up. There is hope. There's always hope. I wouldn't lie to you about that.
I just knew that they support people no matter what. I think that's all I really knew about Samaritans. I think we should all be Samaritans. I've always brought the children up to know that they're okay, so mum's going out to take care of people that need a, a little bit of help. Anyone can call with anything. You're never, ever judged. I raised money for the, the Belfast branch. They said, you know, we're always looking for volunteers here. So that was that. <laughs> They don't give advice, they don't tell you what to do. For me, that's one of the, the biggest reasons that Samaritans works. Sometimes people can go weeks without speaking to someone. We're sociable creatures, you know, we're not meant to be alone. I tried to take my own life a couple of times previous. I rang the Samaritans, I felt safe pretty much instantly, I felt that trust. I was glad at the time that I had someone to talk to. Not everyone sleeps at night. It can be a really lonely time. So where do people go? Where do, what do people do? Who do people talk to? I think it's important that they're there 24-7. At night is when your mind can take you to places that you didn't need to go. Through my own struggles, I kind of appreciated the value of talking. It's all about that connection. People need people. You know, what drives us is our emotions and, and feelings. The second that you put the phone down, another call comes in. They're a 24-hour service and they need the money in. It's vitally important. It's really a privilege to be able to be part of this network. It is powerful. There's no two ways about it. The donations that people give are incredibly important to keep the, the centres running. They do a lot of outreach, whether that's going to schools or prisons. To keep us going 24 hours a day and be there for people when they need us, we really, really need to raise as much as we can. The volunteers are volunteers, but without donations they don't exist, and it's as simple as that. everyday people talking to everyday people, I suppose. You've been listening to Headspace, an extended episode of Writer's Block Radio Hour. Tonight you heard Glenn Dixon, Karen Fraser, Vivian Lamond, Peter Moen, Dee Lee Miller, Benjamin Peel, Anya King, Stephanie McGill, Graham Morgan, Christian Zanoni, Donna Latham, Ariana Rose, Kev Keenan, Christine Foster, Emma Bird, Paul Donnelly, Barbara Ashworth, Shane Stefanchek, Cindy Campbell, Jane Stabler, with special musical guests Chiara Berardelli and Douglas T. Stewart. Writer's Block Radio Hour was curated, produced and engineered by Glenn Dixon. Don't forget to join us next week at the same time, only on Super Sound Radio.